While you're settling into your seats this morning, the ushers are going to receive the offering, so they're going to come forward and take that. And while they're doing that, I want to mention uh, one additional quick announcement, and that's that this last week we, we launched Alpha uh, here in our building in person. We've been running it online for the last year, uh, but Alpha is an amazing, amazing experience. Um, in fact, it's been the heart of, of a revival that's been taking place in the United Kingdom over the last couple of decades, and, and it's something that we're bringing here to B4 because we want to see the same sort of thing happen in our space that's happening in the community there, and God's really been moving in some, some unique ways. But this last week, I was having a, a conversation with a friend of mine, Joshua, new friend of mine, and uh, he just asked me, he goes, hey, I've got this buddy who is thinking about like church a little bit more. He's asking questions, and he said, is that the kind of thing I could bring him to? Could I join him? And, and could we just like kind of ask questions about faith? And I said, that's absolutely what it's about. Um, Alpha works this way. There's a dinner where you sit down. Again, food. A lot. You got applause this morning for food, by the way. I don't know what was going on in the announcements, but Christians get excited about eating. I think that's a, that's a big thing, right? Like in the church. But, uh, but you eat a meal together and then there's these amazing, amazing videos. I've watched them so many times. They're so good. And then there's just a conversation around that table around what was in the video. And uh, it's just an amazing environment. I told Joshua, I said, you, that's absolutely the kind of thing you bring a friend to. But even if you just go, what's my next step here at B4? Um, you you want to learn more about your faith or grow in your faith. Uh, I just encourage you, they launched last week, but there's still space available. So if you want to jump into that or you want to bring somebody um, go out to the resource, uh, what do we call that thing out there? Info the Info Center. The Info Center, thank you. I, I, I mess up my terminology all the time. The Info Center out there, and uh, particularly look for Jamie, and she'll talk to you about that. She can get you plugged in with that, but I wanted to let you know about that. Um, if you have your Bible, I want you to open up to 2 Corinthians. Uh, we're actually studying 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Alex. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, but we're studying 2 Corinthians chapter 10 today. If you'll open up your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 I'm feeling a little cantankerous today. I don't know if you guys can notice that, but uh, we'll see how this goes. We'll see. Maybe we'll be here for a while. I don't know. Um, but as we're turning there, I want to just remind you that we're in a series that's called A People in a Place, and we're looking at a couple of letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the city of Corinth. Um, let me just say this. Corinth, and we talked about this early in the series, but Corinth was a wild city. I mean, it was a wild city. It was a crazy, crazy culture. And it's here in the messy place of Corinth that the gospel starts to get traction in people's lives. And I think that's a really important observation for us to make. So I think for many of us, um, we, when we envision the optimal environment for growing in the gospel, the optimal environment for growing our faith, we typically picture a very pristine place, right? We picture some place where it's really clean, it's really nice, and everything is good and moral. We imagine it like a laboratory. We imagine, we imagine it being um, sterilized and pure, like faith is grown in this perfect little Petri dish in this little environment. But that's, that's rarely, if ever, the case. In fact, uh, just kind of a funny example, um, when we lived in New York City, we had three little girls living in New York City. Our primary form of transportation in New York was riding on the New York City subway. And uh, if you could describe, if you know, in your mind, if somebody said, hey, Brad, I want you to give us the opposite of pristine, I picture a train station in New York City. Has anybody ever been on the subway in New York? Raise your hand if that's you. So you know what I'm talking about. Nasty, filthy, disgusting, rat-infested, gross, all those different things. Well, one day, we're taking our family down the stairs by the station near our house, the A train in Brooklyn. We're going down the station and I glance down and one of my daughters who will remain nameless at this point, I notice that she's got her tongue on the railing and she's running her tongue down it. I know you just ate breakfast. I'm sorry for that. 
But I literally, you panic, right? I'm like, what are you doing? What do you, do you even know? Like, what, I mean, and just, and now you start praying healing prayers over your child because who knows what's on the railing, right? That wasn't the only time it ever happened. Another time, we're standing on the train. We're both holding onto the bar. I look down, she's right here, and she's licking the bar on the train. I'm like, child, who taught you to do these things, right? But here, here's, here's the interesting thing. Here's, here's what happened. Not just to her, but to all of us. After a little time living there, and just being in that environment, we stopped getting sick. Like that kid, she's superhuman, by the way. She's like the cockroach of the universe This now. She's like, she never gets sick. But why? Because our immune system was made stronger by the rigorous environment that it found itself in. So while we think that the gospel grows best in sterile environments, it actually grows strong in rigorous environments. Our faith grows strong in the complexity It grows strong in the mess. That's actually when our faith becomes more formidable. So the apostle Paul is writing to this church in Corinth and he's helping them forge their faith in this place. That's what he's doing. And and along the way, he says some things that are counterintuitive. He says some things that are backwards, backwards for them. And honestly, they're backwards for us in our thinking, which means we have the risk of doing something very dangerous as we read the scriptures. I was reminded this week of something that Thomas Jefferson did in 1820. In 1820, Thomas Jefferson went to his bookshelf. He pulled off a Bible. He got out some scissors and he got some tape and he started cutting out the portions of the Bible that he didn't prefer. In fact, Thomas Jefferson did this. Thomas Jefferson didn't like the way that Christianity was being lived out in front of him. And so he said, I'm gonna remove all the stuff that I think wrecks Christianity. And so he wrote together, he put together this thing and called it the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Thomas Jefferson. He removed all the miracles of Jesus, any mention of the supernatural, any account of the resurrection and passages, any passage that portrayed Jesus as divine. And then he said this, he said, I've performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter which is evidently his and which is easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. The result is an octavo of 46 pages of pure and unsophisticated doctrines. That's Thomas Jefferson. Now you may sit here and go, first of all, you might be shocked that Thomas Jefferson did that. But you might also think to yourself, well, that's audacious, isn't it? You're going to grab the Bible and you are going to determine that you know what was real and what isn't. And you're going to cut these things out and you're going to say, these are the sections that seem to make sense and anything that doesn't make sense, I'm going to throw it out. You could think that's audacious, but it doesn't take me very long when I think about that to realize that what Jefferson did physically, I'm often guilty of subconsciously. Haven't we all at times we've chosen to ignore sections of the scriptures and focus on the ones that we like? Isn't there a temptation to use the Bible at times to validate what we already believe rather than let it renew how we think or let it, let it reshape who we are or let it redeem how we live? Isn't that a temptation for us? Along those lines, Timothy Keller said this. He said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. So do you read the Bible? Do you read Jesus and allow your heart or your thinking or your life to be changed by what you read. This is particularly important as we look at something that Paul repeatedly says over and over again, something he repeatedly models throughout all of his writing, throughout all of his life, that is completely backwards from what we see and what we hear in our culture. We're gonna look at something today that's gonna challenge us. It's gonna challenge us deeply. 
fact, I had a friend just yesterday texted me. He said, I'm going over my notes from Thursday. I'm thinking about the, the verses. And he said, I'm really just trying to learn how this applies to my life. And he's just still thinking about it because this is going to be a little challenging. So with that, I want to dive into 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're actually going to read some of chapter 10. We're going to read some of chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13. And we're going to look at a theme that seems to run through Paul's writings. But beginning in verse 1, he says this. He says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away, I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So quick pause here and let you understand that Paul is talking about meekness and gentleness. He's talking about humility and he's talking about boldness, right? Meekness, gentleness, humility, boldness. Skip down to verse 17. He says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And then if you turn over to chapter 11, you see this in verse 30. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. And then in chapter 12, we read this. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weakness and insults and hardship and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. Then a few verses later, speaking of Jesus, he says this in chapter 13, verse four. He says, for he was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So you read this and you read Paul's other writings and clearly there's a dimension of the gospel that embraces weakness. There's, there's a dimension of the gospel that actually values humility, which is challenging. It's challenging because Paul is an influential person, right? If, we, if he was living in our culture today, if he was on social media, we might even call him an influencer, right? Paul is a leader. Paul is an apostle. He is entrepreneurial. He's pioneering new works in all of these different places. And yet it says that he boasts in his weakness. He, he leans into his humility. This has really significant implication as it relates to people like us trying to live out the gospel in a culture like ours. Now, I want to explain something about the Bible for just a moment. Um, whenever we read the Bible, we're bringing different perspectives or approaches to what we're reading. Um, there are schools of thought, just so you understand, like the background of this. Theologically, there are schools of thought and various methods that people use uh, in this artistic science of, of, of understanding the Bible. It's called hermeneutics. And it's important for us to know that there are things called hermeneutical errors that can be committed, and those errors frequently result in misunderstanding around the Bible. So, for example, um, many people in the modern church, especially in the West, have looked at the Bible more prescriptively than descriptively. Let me just explain this. Um, they, they read the Bible, they interpret things as if they're being prescribed for us. So here's a behavior, now you do that behavior. And so they look at everything and go, well, they did that, so we do that. And they did this and we do this. And so that's the way they do it. That's one option. The other end of the spectrum is, is descriptively. Reading descriptively means this. It means that we are, we're reading a description of people during a particular time, at a particular place, living out a particular principle. 
And what we're reading is simply a description of what it looks like for people then to live out that particular principle. Um, so, so this helps us understand and make sense of all sorts of prohibitions and, and directives given back then that make very little sense in our culture today. For example, if you open up your Bible, you will find that there are verses that say that you shouldn't wear clothing with blended fabrics. Well, that's problematic for us this morning, right? So maybe you shouldn't have been allowed in the doors today if you have a 25% wool blend on today. So that's a prohibition. It doesn't make much sense to us today, right? Or, or women not adorning themselves with jewelry or men being forced to marry the widows of their deceased brothers. Very grateful that we don't have to do that, amen? You don't wanna marry your sister-in-law, right? These are stated like commands, but they make little sense until you understand them descriptively. Here's what it looked like back then when people lived on those principles. That's descriptive. So it turns out this. It turns out that the Bible is far more descriptive than it is prescriptive, right? Which means that in spite of what many people think, there are far less rules or commands that we, that we think that are in the Bible. The rules and commands are usually frequently describing how a particular group of people lived out a particular set of principles. Are you with me so far on this? With me? Okay. A couple of you, that's good. As long as I have two or three. Now, with saying that, that doesn't mean that there aren't places where the Bible is prescribing something or gives us a very clear descriptor of what we're supposed to be doing. There may be less, but there still are some. And what I find it fascinating is that in all of our misdirection with the prescriptive approach, we've often missed the most critical, most important prescriptive behavior in all of the scriptures as it relates to being a Christian. It's the underpinning or the foundation for everything that Paul is talking about as it relates to humility and weakness and the power of God. One of the few prescriptive behaviors or directives given to us in the Bible is that we pattern our life after the crucifixion. That, we, we, that our lives follow the example of the cross that we enter into what I refer to as cruciformity or the cruciform life. Now, where does that word come from? Well, that's simply the word crucifixion and the word conformity smashed together, right? Cruciformity. And it means that we are being conformed to the crucifixion, changed, shaped, modeled in the same model as the crucifixion, a life patterned after the cross, One of the most outlandish statements made by the early Christians is found in in the first letter to the Corinthians that he he wrote to this church. He said something in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that is so countercultural and so controversial, and yet it also is what makes sense of Christianity in a way that that we have lost sense of. So, So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20, listen to this. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So I want you to notice what he said. Basically, he says, where are the so-called smart ones? Where are the miracle workers? That's what you want, right? You want signs and you want wisdom. Then he says, God has worked differently than what you expected. 
In this moment, Paul is offending the sensibilities of the Greeks and the Jews. How? Because instead of wisdom, instead of miracles, as the answer, he says, I'm giving you Christ crucified. It's not about wisdom. It's not about miracles. It's about Christ crucified. And then he says something right down, downright scandalous. He says, for those who get it, who understand it, the crucified Christ is both the power and the wisdom of God. The crucified Christ is the power. The crucified Christ is the wisdom. The crucified Christ is the power that we experience and the wisdom that we walk in. It is the power that shapes us and it's the wisdom that we apply. The crucified Christ. It's not two separate things. It's not like there's this thing called the crucifixion and then there's the power and the wisdom of God. He's merging these together and he's saying, do you understand that the power and the wisdom of God are found in, they're one and the same with the crucifixion and a cruciform life. And you have to understand how eccentric this statement was then. Paul, his spiritual experience that he's describing is not a part of the mainstream religion or mainstream thought of his day. And it's not a part of ours. He's actually off-center. That's why I use the word eccentric. Because he admits it right off the, off the top. This doesn't make sense to you Greeks. This doesn't make to you Jews. This doesn't make sense to, to, to you living in 2021. This is out there. The crucifixion is central. And that's scandalous. Crucifixion was first century Rome's most horrific instrument of power and control. It was the most miserable of deaths. The most torturous way to die. A person who was crucified was a person who was cursed. They were ashamed. They were, they were outcast. They were rejected. To suffer the crucifixion was the most shameful of deaths. It was happening all of the time. I think we kind of lose perspective of that. We usually think of one crucifixion, but this was a common form of torturous execution that was being used. And whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, it was the ultimate form of shame and rejection. And the fact that Paul doesn't simply elevate the crucifixion, but puts it at the center of what it means to be a Christian rattles, I believe, the foundation of what people believe then and I think of what they believe now. The crucifixion is not something that just happened. It's not just this historical event that we look back on reverently and we appreciate. He says the crucifixion is a way of life. The cross isn't just a symbol as much as it is a pattern for living. The words power and wisdom imply that this is something that's being lived out. The cross, when you and I live out the pattern of the cross in practical ways, that has a power in our life. The crucifixion lived out is a wisdom that you apply to your decisions. So we're not talking about the theology of the cross. We're not talking about the subject of the cross. What we're really describing is the spirituality of the cross. Because spirituality, I want to make sure you understand this, that spirituality is the lived experience of belief. Our spirituality, what we do, is the expression of whatever it is that we believe internally, right? We're on the same page with this. So this is a word we use to describe the way in which you live, the way you live towards others, the way you interact with culture, the way you interact towards creation, particularly the way you interact with God, based upon what you believe to be sacred and true. Or you could flip it upside down and say it this way, the way you live tells others what you actually believe, right? 
So, so for example, if I say, you know, Jesus calms all fears and Jesus takes away all anxieties, but every time I get nervous or I get anxious, I go to the freezer and I grab a big tub of ice cream and I start chowing down, I, it looks like I believe in ice cream more than I believe in Jesus, right? So cruciformity is this art of entering into the spirituality of the cross. That's what cruciform living is. A cruciform life is a life that's shaped in a way that is lived a particular way towards God and towards others, toward creation and towards culture. And it's defined by the cross. The cross sets the pattern for how I respond to you and to God and to my culture and to the world in which I live. It's a way of being. It's a way of doing life. And it means this. It means that there are going to be situations that you and I face. There are going to be complexities. There's going to be decisions. There are going to be conflicts. And if we are fortunate enough to have the space to think or, or we're smart enough to stop, pump the brakes, and then ask, how does the crucifixion, how does the cross inform this situation? Then we will see our life begin to take the shape of the cross. We take those situations and we stop and say, how do I respond in light of the cruciform life? Which, by the way, means this. It means that there is a way to respond to these situations, these circumstances, our relationships. There is a way that is cruciform and there's a way that's not cruciformed. So, so, so there's somebody at work, right? And they just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, and you have to deal with it. You realize that there's a cruciform way to do that. There's this argument that you and your spouse keep getting into, and you thought it would go away, but it's six or nine months later, maybe it's six or nine years later, and it's still there. There's a cruciform way to resolve that. There's a situation that you keep finding yourself in. You keep being stuck in this spot and you, you know it. Or there's a decision that you have to make. There's a resource that's been given to you, something that's landed in your lap. There's this thing, whatever this thing is, and there is a way to navigate that that reflects the principles of the cross, the laying down of your life. And by the way, when you do that, when you finally get the courage to look at that scenario or that situation and to, to do the cross in that situation, to live out the cross in that situation, there is power and there is wisdom in that. That's what Paul says. Power means that there's a shift that takes place. It means the moment that you now take the form of the cross in that scenario, there is change that is going to happen. Things will be different because you did something different. So there's power in the cruciform life and there's wisdom in the cruciform life. That means it shows you a way forward. It means when you're stuck and you're back in the corner and, and you say, I don't know how I'm gonna get out of this. What am I gonna do? And there's a cruciformed way that provides wisdom to that situation. So where does this begin? How, how do we actually become the kind of people that do this? How do we start this sort of life? Well, it begins with our identity. That's where this starts. It begins with a cruciform you. That's where this begins. Something has to happen in you. Something has to happen inside of me. And that something is something that I believe we've missed. And I'm not sure how we did because Jesus was painstakingly clear about this. 
At one point in, in Jesus' ministry, he was, um, he was teaching crowds. They were enamored with his work. Obviously, um, you know, as Casey mentioned earlier, Jesus was healing people everywhere he went. So people were really excited about the person of Jesus. And, and so crowds were gathering around and everybody's excited about what he's doing. And they thought that Jesus was pretty much the answer for everything that they were looking for, probably a lot like us. And so he gathers them together and at the risk of them leaving, he says something that's essential for them to understand. And they, they, they may not like it, but if you want the power and the wisdom of God, this is what it looks like. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, we read this. It says, Jesus said to all, he said to the crowd, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Do you hear this? The way of Jesus is self-denial, deny himself. There's an identity shift here, right? It doesn't matter who you are. If you're human and you have blood coursing through your veins, this is asking you to do something that isn't natural. This is an identity shift. That's a major change in how you have been hardwired to live. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you deny yourself. And then in a culture... Do you listen to this? In a culture, Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. In a culture where the cross was the most feared thing on the planet, he says, take up your cross. That's earth shattering when they hear this. A rejection death, a public death, a humiliating death. Remember, the crucifixion is the ripping apart of your identity. It's a total loss. It wasn't just a death, but it represented a loss of citizenship. It represented a loss of family. People... People who were crucified were considered cursed. They were rejected by everybody. So, so, so the cross, when someone dies on a cross, it represented the stripping of everything that they would have identified with. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross, what's he saying? Well, he's saying all of those varying titles and descriptions that you use to identify yourself, all those things you value, all of those things, they die. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, slave, free, Democrat, Republican, gay, straight, American, Irish, educated, uneducated, you go on the list, they all die. They are no longer the primary means by which we are identified. They're no longer the labels that we use to describe ourselves. The way of Jesus begins with a denial of ourselves and a visible death. He said it. And, and then those who actually came after him, followed after him, they said it as well. The apostle Paul, he experiences this radical shift in his identity when he follows Jesus. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. He says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. To, to know means something like um, to experience and announce through my actions. I decided to live in front of you in a way that all you would see is Jesus Christ crucified. In fact, not only did he announce this, but it's comprehensive. He says this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I've been crucified. A death. 
And now I don't live with the same identity. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said this in verse 14. He said, for the love of Christ controls, or some, some versions say compels us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you hear the language here? The spirituality of Jesus is not about you and I living our best life now. That is not what it is. This is not about us getting it our way. It's not the good life at a great price. That those who might live no longer live for themselves. You know, over the years I've heard people say they gave Jesus a chance and Jesus didn't work. But here's what I really think. I think folks that say that were never truly cruciformed. They never died to themselves. And, and here's what's interesting. All of the Jesus principles, all of the Jesus promises, they all assume that you've died. They all assume you've died. They're all predicated on a crucified self. So if you don't think Jesus' principles work or you don't think that Jesus keeps his promises, then you're likely still on the front side of a crucified life and you'll never get what he's talking about. In fact, I'll just confess this. Let me say that 99% of the time when I find myself frustrated with God, when I find myself frustrated with Jesus or frustrated with my life, you know what I realize? It's because I've forgotten the cruciform life that I'm called to live. The love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ compels us to love like he loved. One final thing, and I'll close with this. I want you to notice the frequency that Jesus mentions as it relates to this. He says, I want you to deny yourself. I want you to take up your cross daily, daily. There's a couple of ways we can understand that. Um, We can see it as an all-encompassing, like, every day for the rest of your life. Like, he's saying it that way. But I think if Jesus meant it that way, I think he probably would have said it that way. I think a better way of understanding it is this. Don't worry about yesterday. (laughs) And don't worry about tomorrow. The way of Jesus is lived in this moment that's in front of you. Don't worry about yesterday. Don't worry about tomorrow. Worry about today. Instead, it's about today. Today, fight the urge to put yourself first, to demand your way, to apply worldly power and wisdom. Fight that and deny yourself. That's cruciform spirituality. And there's that thing, there's that scenario in your life. And and I... I think every one of us has a situation or a scenario this morning that we're facing that if we would apply the cruciform power and the cruciform wisdom of Jesus to it, it would change what's taking place there. Like that, that's how a guy, <laughs> that's how a guy named Paul who was humble and refused to boast in anything other than his weakness became one of the most influential, famous humans in history. You ever think about this? We have a culture that's pressing to be famous, pressing to change the world, and one of the most powerful, influential people to ever walk the planet is this guy named the Apostle Paul who said, I don't boast on anything but my weakness, and I'm humble, and I've been crucified, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And somehow God took that guy's life, and he changed the world with it. 
So if you're ever afraid, like, oh man, if I do this, if I really deny myself, if I really lean in and follow the way of Jesus, I'm, I'm not going to amount to anything. Let me just tell you that when you do what Jesus tells you to do, he will fulfill his promises. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? I want to close with a benediction this morning. And for those of you that are new, this is an ancient um, blessing that churches have done for centuries. It just simply as you as the congregation holding your hands out to receive it and me just offering this and sending you into this day and into this week in light of what we've just heard. So I offer this to you today. May you be men and women who walk with a cruciform faith. May you apply cruciform power. May you apply cruciform wisdom to the circumstances of your life. And may the gospel, may your faith grow in the rigorous environment that we find ourselves in. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today. Feel free to hang out, talk to friends, stand in that courtyard today, get, get, just get information if you need it. Just be here today. Just t connect with somebody and we'll see you guys next Sunday. See you later.